Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161 AG62, Profanity, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 166, March 10, 1988. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss a subject that is very much neglected and misunderstood. One of our problems in our time is that we have no sense of definition because dictionaries today no longer have standards. Our subject tonight is profanity. Now the word profanity today is reduced by many to saying uh, certain dirty words, but that is not the true meaning. The word profanity comes from two words, profano, which means outside the temple or outside of God. So profanity is any living any speaking, any acting that is outside of God, which acts as though God does not exist. Sometimes this is called secularism, but the word secularism has several meanings, and while this is one of them, it is better to stick with the older and truer term, profanity. Modern man acts as though God does not exist. Whereas at one time, everyone of whatever religion believed that their lives from day one to the last in all their aspects were religious and that no aspect of life could be separated from faith. Now, faith is only a small corner of the lives of even Christians. They are profane because they assume that most of their life is outside of God. They are profane when they feel that politics is uh, outside of the faith or that art or anything else, music, any sphere of life, if we say it's not a part of our world of faith, then we have become profane. Well, with that introduction, Otto, do you want to make some opening remarks? Well, if you recall, when you were a very small child, you were very much aware of the presence of God. Yes. And that seems to be true across the board. Later on, of course, the presence, that, that presence no longer seems as imminent. Uh, as it was then, but you took God for granted. Yeah. Then you go to school. That's right. Well, then school helped break it up. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that helped break up a lot of your uh, very early uh, feelings and thoughts. But if we look at uh, the long reach of history, the uh, once the ancients created a civilization, the civilizations were always religious and they maintained themselves for in some instances several thousand years 
we're talking about the oldest democracy in the West, the oldest constitution in the West, and we barely got 200. Now, these were thousands of years of stability yeah. and uh, of religious faith in which we may argue with the type and the quality of the faith, but it was a faith that kept people going. No civilization has ever survived the loss of its faith. Now, I can't forget that wonderful comment of Owen Chadwick to the effect that if any other civilization had lost its faith as rapidly as ours, our experts would have broken each other down in order to get there to study such a phenomenon. But since it occurred here amongst, in, amongst the people of the West, it's been treated as a natural development or not even a development. Mm -hmm. It's not even been commented upon. And your comments about what is profane makes me think about the, uh, the effect of the gold strike, where towns all across the United States had laws against blasphemy, taking the Lord's name in vain. And these men rushed out west to the gold fields and came back cursing, cursing their fate because they came back in most cases without any money, without the stake that they had started with and so forth. And the whole tradition, the whole flavor of the United States altered. And it's no wonder that after that, in the 1850s, we ran into a civil war. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a very interesting connection. The gold rush in 49, their return in the 50s, and at the end of the 50s, the outbreak of war. Right. In 1860. And they killed each other so viciously. It was a modern war in the sense it was a total war. The rules of warfare, which had been well established, were thrust aside. Sherman's march to the sea is a standing disgrace to the army of the United States because he treated women and children as combatants, burned down the homes, burned the crops, killed the animals, left a wave of devastation all the way. And this breaking of the normal, civilized Christian rules of warfare was a, an extension of the downfall of true Christian faith in the United States at that time. Lincoln has never been properly assessed nor has the North been properly assessed in that conflict. It was the beginning of total war. And yes. The German general staff studied it very carefully and then used it in the Franco-Prussian War. And, of course, everyone used it in World War One and World War Two. Absolutely. Well, profanity now is worldwide. You've had the so-called Islamic fundamentalists trying to wage war against it, but it has not been a popular movement. And there is a tremendous amount of hostility in both countries, uh, in Saudi Arabia, where it is strongest, and Iran. Those who are under 30, the overwhelming majority of the population in Saudi Arabia, do not agree with it. So even the Islamic version is facing troubles. Profanity has taken over the world and it is destroying the world. Well, to live without God means to live without guilt. 
it means that there is no sin. It means that all is permitted. Yes. But oddly enough, even the people who say that do not seem to be able to escape guilt. It eats them up. Yes. It eats them up. Stalin, in the end, locked himself in and had his meals delivered on a tray left outside his door and would open the door and pull the tray in and then lock the door again because the ghosts were coming after him. He was positive he was going to be murdered. The woman who was his housekeeper and cook for years and years, almost the only one who trusted him, who, uh, who uh, was trusted by him, uh, on one occasion, one of the uh, boxes of tea that went into the room had been somehow in transit uh, uh, damaged, so it was slightly open. She went to a slave labor camp for that, even though it was demonstrated on inspection that the tea was not poisonous. Well, in a cab, going down Park Avenue, one, one summer day, stopped at a stoplight, and the door opened in one of those buildings along Fifth and two men came out, and each one stood on each side of the door, and then Grimico appeared. And he looked right and then left, and it was like a radar sweep, and he saw everything. He saw me looking at him in the cab. He saw everything. All his senses were alert. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a way to live. Yes. yes. Unforgettable. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> humanism, of course, is the classic expression of profanity because humanism and the humanist manifestos insist that the only way man should live is without God, with himself as <clears throat> the only standard and the only law. One scholar, uh, Hawks, has written that... Uh, in history, we've seen a remarkable fact, and he calls it the Greek miracle. And uh, the Greek miracle was humanism. Still another writer, writing in the most recent issue of uh, the ancient world, a journal, L.R. Hill has uh, said that the Greek miracle was the discovery of humanism. In other words, the greatest thing in all civilization for our academicians has been living life without God. Well, if you look at other people, with all the goodwill in the world, it's awfully hard for a sensible man to pin his faith on humanity. Yes. But they don't pin it on humanity as a whole, but on themselves. On themselves as the epitome of humanity. As the elite. As the prototypes. Right. Right. But the argument is, of course, that these are people who have warm values, who are compassionate and who are noble and who love beauty and they have high ethics and so forth. But every civilization and every era that has turned away from God has wound up in the gutter. 
Yes. In the gutter. And the sad fact and the disastrous fact is that in the uh, elitist intellectual journals like the ancient world, you have these men advocating something that is more bankrupt than anything else the world has ever known, humanism. Well, there was a, there is a humanist association in the United States, you know, that yes. has several hundred thousand members, yes. and uh, they have uh, rallies and they have meetings, and they are determined to stamp out religion if they possibly can. I think the People for the American Way, which is a title that's always amused me, because apparently the founders of that organization think that the American Way was anti-Christian, the people for the American way are humanists, but they don't say they are. What we're moving into now and what we have moved into is much more sophisticated propaganda than we were confronted with in the past. Uh, you know that your books are never reviewed, for instance, in any of the journals. Uh, they're treated as non-objects. They, they're invisible. Uh, my last book on South Africa wasn't reviewed anywhere to speak of, uh, one or two conservative places, whereas its predecessors were reviewed all across the country. And we're now running into humanists and pragmatists and anti-Christians and communists and all kinds of individuals who have abandoned their labels and who have found that it's much easier to propagate their beliefs if they don't label them. Yes. Well, um, this profanity, of course, has captured many, many of the churches. Many people who claim to be born-again Christians. For example, to uh, put your child in a humanistic school is profanity. It's saying that education outside of God can be good for a child. It is similarly profanity to live as though one had no responsibility to God and to Christ wherever one worked, wherever one lived. Or that life in itself is uh, mostly secular. So that uh, when you go to church Sunday, uh, you fulfilled your Christian duties. If you don't drink or fornicate during the rest of the week, then you're holy. Well, that's not holiness. That's profanity. Uh, the very fact that Dan Maxwell, when he went to a number of uh, prominent so-called Christian men of business to get them to contribute to our Journal of Christian Reconstruction, you remember, the issue a few years ago on business. Yes. And they looked at him and said, what the hell does Christianity have to do with my business? They couldn't see any connection. But these are the people who regularly are featured at Bible-believing groups. But for them, their business is outside of the life of faith. As long as they uh, don't sleep with a secretary. Well, uh, 
I just came back from a from a meeting of the CMRE, as you know, mm -hmm. the Committee on Monetary Research and Education. And it's always been an interesting group, but a somewhat limited group in a sense, because the majority of those who attend are interested in the market. What's going to happen in the market? There is a leavening number, you might say, who are interested in what the political impact of market will have or what impact politics will have on the market. And that about represents the ceiling of the group. But none of the group, or hardly any of the group, think that there's anything beyond those two matters. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there is. There's a great big sky over all of us. And there is the eternal and watchful presence of Almighty God. And if you forget that, then you have lost your compass. You are wandering in a trackless sea. You're in the desert. And that's the reason that so many of these people are actually unhappy. Mm -hmm. I don't know of a more unhappy country than this one. And yet I've been in other parts of the world very poor. There are large areas of Latin America where the poverty is intense, where the people are happy because they do have a faith. Life is good for them. If uh, there's meat on the table, well, then it's a time to feel good. And I just come back from this very well-heeled upper-middle-class enclave, all unhappy as can be, with very rare exceptions. Yeah. Now, the profane, uh, they're profaning their lives. Yes. Well, uh, to get back to the profanity in the church, I had an interesting experience some years ago at the beginning of the 60s. Dorothy will recall it vividly. I went from California up into Oregon for a meeting and there were a number of pastors going together. Uh, we took two cars, one was the station wagon. I think there were about a dozen of us in the two cars. So on the way there were a number of stops because it was a long trip and we started early in the morning. We stopped for breakfast, they stopped for coffee, stopped for lunch and so on. And in the course of it, I began to discuss a, a subject I felt was very important. I said it was important for them as Christian leaders to protect themselves in terms of what was coming economically. I said that one of the first signs of what was ahead would be the disappearance of silver coins. Now this was before the disappearance of silver coins. Before, well, the more. before Lyndon decided to jacket them, yes. Yes, so uh, I explained what was happening, why it was happening, what inflation meant, what hard money meant, and so on. Well, when we got there to the meeting, and there was a, a banquet also the next day, the big joke at the banquet was yours truly and his ideas about silver. 
In fact, one of the leaders held up a silver dime. Of course, that's the only kind of dime there was there. And said, let's give this to Rush and make him feel safe and secure in terms of what he says is coming. And they all thought it was a big joke. There was only one who began to save his silver and accumulated quite a bit and then got weary and uh, disposed of it all and told me some years later how much he regretted it. Well, now that was profanity on their part. They were refusing to see what the Bible says about just weights and just measures, which applies to money. They were refusing to see the world outside of the church as under God and his law. They were guilty of profanity. And of course, when things began to happen and they were unprepared for it, they all were resentful of me. Well, all I can do is repeat Mark Twain. He said that's human nature. You can't say much worse. <laughs> well, there was something I remember reading once called The Sacred and the Profane. And it was the title, if I'm not mistaken, of a play. I can't recall who the playwright was, but it was before our time. A title like that today would make no sense. The term profane it doesn't make any sense. Blasphemy doesn't make any sense. You remember the Bishop Pike yeah. and uh, have was put on trial for heresy, I believe, in his denomination. I've forgotten what it was. Episcopal. Episcopal. And the laughter of the journalists that such a medieval proceeding could take place. Mm -hmm. Yes, well... Profanity today is so prevalent that the meaning has eroded. A profane man today, if the term is used at all, has almost disappeared, means someone who uses, as I said earlier, bad language. But the church is profane. The church is profane because it does not apply the faith across the board. In New England and across the country in the early years of this country, we had election sermons. We had sermons that dealt with the facts of everyday life. Martin Luther, in his preaching, spoke about stealing as debasing money, and so on down the line. Well, as you know, I've just written an article on the new law, which has been yes, passed. An excellent article on the... In the Conservative Digest. March, or is it April? It's March, I think. March Conservative Digest. In which Congress, in its wisdom, has enacted a law which, in effect, makes it, makes it illegal to have an election sermon. Uh, uh, not quite illegal. Uh, it... it renders you ineligible for a tax exemption. Yes. Which is not quite illegality. It means that you have lost what the government does no longer considers a right, but a privilege. And of course now the Catholic Church is before the U.S. Supreme Court, which could say that they have no right to tax exemption because they are 
against anti-abortion. Yes. So now you have profanation, so to speak, in the real sense, and that is when somebody enters God's house to commit an offense. Yes. The goal is, and it has been stated more than once, to say that the church has no right to condemn homosexuality. We had a problem with that here in California about eight, nine years ago when a number of churches lost their tax exemption on that issue. Or to oppose abortion, or to oppose adultery, or oppose anything that is against the general consensus. Public policy. Public policy. This would be the end of the church. Uh, well, of course it will be selectively applied for a while. Oh, yes. Now, I understand, I think I was reading today, <clears throat> that uh, various black churches are receiving envelopes to contribute to Jesse Jackson's campaign. I don't expect Congress or anyone else to move against that. But they will select unpopular small fringe groups to move against to establish all the legal precedents. Yes, and because the church is so profane, it doesn't get worked up when it sees this sort of thing happening. As, for example, the trial I mentioned, you know, that I was in a few months ago, where a southern state moved against several churches on the grounds that they were favoring child abuse by favoring spankings for children. And the Deputy Attorney General spoke of the Bible as a child abuse manual. Now, these churches throughout that state could not get worked up. They were not concerned. They were not concerned. No one was in the courtroom except the ministers who were on trial. And that's profanity. Well, well, now you're talking about the profanation by the state, mm -hmm. the government. Now, the government is one thing, the state is another. Governments can come and go, administrations can come and go, but the state is the entire apparatus uh, of the society which can expand or contract. When the state looms over the citizenry, when this administration, for instance, the Reagan administration, which proclaims itself as conservative, and we have some very strange people in it. We have an attorney general who has sanctioned the persecution of many of his own colleagues, which is very strange. The Department of Justice under, under Meese has, has put a representative, Hansen, in prison, and so forth. Yes. Uh, this administration has moved against the churches as effectively as any of its predecessors yeah. and, and gone farther than any of its predecessors while talking about its great respect for uh, Christianity. And profanation by the state is, of course, the ultimate challenge to all Christians Yes, one of the most important passages that I've often cited in St. Augustine has to do precisely with the state as a profane institution. Because Augustine says, 
that when a civil government, a state, will not recognize the Lord, they will soon be no different than a criminal gang, a band of robbers. All right, that brings me back to a comment I made before, that the omission of Christianity from the Constitution laid Christianity open for this. Yes. And today, Christianity does not prevail in the councils of state anywhere in the world. And as a result, we are in the disaster that we are, that profanity has become enthroned, and therefore God's judgment is going to be on the whole earth. Well, yes. In the Soviet, they've already outlawed God, so they have in China, mm -hmm. so they have in Cuba, Nicaragua, and other places. And we have sat here uh, and watched it and not moved a finger and haven't even uttered a word. Uh, Augustine said that people were either members of the city of God or the city of man and that history is a struggle between the two. And at times, both church and state can be in one camp and then in another. And over the centuries, church and state have gone back and forth between the city of man and the city of God. Today, virtually every civil government is in the city of man and many, many churches. Well, virtually, I wouldn't say virtually, but a great many Americans believe that as long as they uh, obey the state, they are performing the highest duty. Mm -hmm. They have no idea of the company that they've placed themselves in. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, profanity, thus, is very clearly something modern man needs to be concerned about, and yet, there is never a sermon on profanity in its truly biblical meaning. It's disappeared from the pulpit. Well, you can see why. It yes. takes a certain amount of courage. Yes. I mean, to go against the highest authorities, mm -hmm. even in a philosophic sense. Yes. And even in a religious sense. One of the organized forms of uh, religious profanity since World War II was the Death of God School of Theology. The Death of God School of Theology insisted that God is dead to us, they said. They never said that God per se is dead. They said as far as we're concerned, he doesn't exist. We don't care. He can be out there, but for us, he's dead. Moreover, they were insistent on the priority of man, and one of the leaders of the school uh, spoke with a great deal of joy about his son, whom he had trained to think of uh, man as the creator. And once, when they were out at night, uh, the boy looked up at the stars and said, Daddy, which of those did we put up there? <laughs> and the son uh, gladdened his father's 
heart. He had to write about it. He was so proud of his son. He was liberated. The death of God's school of theology was thus a school of profanity. It is no longer uh, talked about because it is not that their ideas have gone away, but they are so taken for granted now that the theologians all presuppose the ideas of the death of God's school of theology. Well, I submit that uh, pietism, although it may profess to believe the Bible from cover to cover, is guilty of the same kind of thinking, that God is dead as far as most of the world is concerned and that he's only interested in saving their souls so they don't go to hell which is a way of saying that God is dead as far as most of the world is concerned. Well, it's really a way of saying that <clears throat> the world doesn't count. I do. Yes. God is only interested in me, not in the world. Mm -hmm. The world is operated by the devil. So they've given up the world. Yes. And to turn the world over to the devil means that you don't, uh, you don't expect to change it or improve it or, or halt whatever it does because it's the devil's property. What is left then for God? Very little. Very little. Just the individual whose soul he so hungers to uh, improve. Yes. And uh, that makes God a, a pretty close to a valid of some sort. I don't know what. Uh, I don't. I think the death of God uh, nonsense created such a furor, such a reaction. You know, Time magazine didn't recover for an awfully long time from running that on their cover on Easter. Now, most of our big Christian holidays are the occasion for anti-Christian uh, exhibitions of one sort or another. We're regaled with documentaries which make fun of us or else there's uh, the uh, ACLU charges to remove Christianity from all public places and so forth and so on. In fact, Christmas and Easter are becoming painful occasions because all the enemies appear. And uh, you were talking about the profane. The profane choose holy moments to profane. Yes. I mean, the whole point of profaning something is to s select the most sacred symbols to object to. Yes, that was the whole point during the Middle Ages and still of the Black Mass, of caricaturing it in the most obscene and profane way imaginable. And today that sort of thing, in a variety of forms, is commonplace. Well, we see uh, Christianity as a subject of comedies, mm -hmm. a subject of satires, a subject of bad novels, uh, the priests succumbing to the sins of the flesh. And you look at those who express such horror. The pornographers are amazed. They, they think that uh, any, any failure anywhere along the line of any Christian is something against nature as though uh, Christianity is some form of magic or another, or, or as though Christians don't admit that they're sinners. It's an interesting subject. Yes. The world today is so caught up in its profanity 
that it cannot tolerate even a small corner of the world being left to God in Christ. And therefore, the more it pushes back the church and limits it, the more intense it, its hatred becomes. One would think, for example, in the Soviet Union that having destroyed most of the churches, including centuries-old architectural gems, and having driven so many people out of the church, they would relax, but they've only intensified their persecution. And it is more savage today than it has been since the revolution. It's interesting. They always portray uh, St. Basil's Cathedral in Moscow, you know, mm -hmm. with that onion-shaped spire yes. and the multicolored. And inside, it's an atheist museum. Yes. Every one of our correspondents stands there with a microphone and with St. Basil's Cathedral in the backdrop. And none of them has ever said what's inside that place. Yes. None of them have ever remarked on it. But if it was a museum devoted to mocking any other religion, would they be quiet? No, they would not. Their anti-Christianity is essential to their whole world and life view. Well, one is only to speak to the press as I have on occasions and I've been somewhere at a conference and they deign to come in order to write something ugly uh, to see their intense hatred for anyone or anything that is Christian. Well, that brings up the whole point that <clears throat> Satan's rebellion was against goodness. It was against virtue. Uh, Melville, in his uh, Billy Budd novel, the, the mate that hated Billy Budd hated Billy Budd because he was virtuous. It's no accident that Nero selected the Christians to persecute and to blame for the fire, the conflagration that took down so much of Rome, because the Christians with their spectacularly austere lifestyle offended Nero more than any other group of people could possibly offend him. And this brings up the whole question because there is something about your virtues which arouse the enmity of those who don't have them. The enmity of the irreligious against those who go to church the enmity against the name of Jesus is incredible. Yes. Burning, intense. People get offended. I've had fellows say to me one day, I, I don't mind religion, but I just don't want to hear about Jesus. I said, I wonder why that is. Mm -hmm. They have never read anything that Jesus ever said. They've never read the Gospels. They never quote him. They don't know anything about him, but they have a hatred. And uh, I found in, in my course that some of my most bitter opponents have been individuals who oppose me for my virtues, not my vices. They don't mind my vices. Mm -hmm. They like to see those. 
Yes. Well, we have a situation today where Congress sees fit, as you mentioned earlier, to try to control the churches. And yet, if you take the most flagrant vices that have come to light with regard to TV evangelists and compare them to what is routine on Capitol Hill, mm. you wonder that they have the nerve to dream of uh, uh, being uh, righteously indignant about anything or anyone else. Well, the Wall Street Journal has done us a service recently regarding Congress and brings to mind the question, in my mind at least, and I think it would be worth somebody filing a case on, as to whether it is constitutional for Congress to exempt itself from the laws it enacts upon the rest of us. Yes. Because what, in effect, Congress is doing is creating itself as a nobility exempt from the laws that affect the common man. Yes. And I'm not sure that that's consonant with our Constitution. No, but it is certainly consonant with uh, the Phariseeism of Congress. I do believe that... Uh, Never since the first century have we seen such organized Phariseeism as Washington, D.C. represents. Incredible. Both parties. Both parties is right. But there is a profanation of all that is decent in this country's traditions. Mm -hmm. And it tells us very clearly how right St. Augustine was when he said that civil governments without God will soon become mafias, as it were. The South African government is a fairly Christian government. It works very hard to do something to escape the odium uh, that it has collected from around the world because of its racial situation. And it's caught in a very curious bind. If it abandons authority, that whole area will fall apart. Mm -hmm. If it maintains authority, it stands convicted of racism. Yes, they're in a difficult situation, and one of the problems is that the churches are becoming theologically soft and weak, so that is as great a threat there as anything the United States or the Soviet Union poses. Our churches have never really been strong, and as far as I can gather, since the 1820s. I think they began to go downhill about that time. Uh, in fact, uh, in New England it started much earlier, but in the country at large, it, about 1820 and after. There were times of recuperation in every area. But the basic direction, despite some uh, recoveries, was basically down. What you had was the rise in New England of the Unitarians and elsewhere of the pietists who withdrew from the world. The country had Christian schools, but the pietists killed it. They wanted only a concentration on the life of the soul, and education was uh, something the state could do just as well. So they surrendered it. 
the war, as you said earlier, in 1860 uh, was related to the gold rush, and re it was related also to the uh, rise of pietism and the refusal of Christians to face up to the issues. The sad fact is that it was the abolitionists who were either Unitarians or humanists outright were most concerned with dealing with the issue. The others didn't want to face up to it. They wanted the status quo, and that was it. Well, the I went into that a bit, you know, the Secret Six, yes. and that's coming out again pretty soon. The uh, I I gave it to somebody. I gave a copy of that first edition to somebody in South Africa, and they said, "Well, what relevance is that to our situation?" <laughs> Amazing. And I also gave a copy, I remember, to a Cuban exile who was trying to help the Nicaraguans to understand the nature of the threat against Somoza and had much the same reaction, that events of a hundred years or more ago really don't have much relevance to the situation we're in today. Which brings us back to the uh, belief that there is nothing permanent that Augustine is not talking about the world, the permanent world, in relation to uh, the age of man or the situation of man. And I wonder if the clergy of the United States ever gets any history in the seminary outside of the history of the church. Uh, uh, is the clergy educated in the true sense? Yes. Well, that's an interesting question, and this matter of permanence. One of the things that nobody has ever commented on with regard to St. Augustine is uh, St. Augustine's knowledge of uh, the nightclub life of his day. Well, it was extensive. Yes. Now, St. Augustine, before his conversion, was very much a man of the world. So he comments upon the acts that were commonplace, acts which he had enjoyed. And he cites them because he says, this is how far we've gone. Now, <laughs> some of the things he describes would be hardly repeatable, which would be true also of the many things that prevail today. But the point he was making was that men were going further and further afield in profanity, in a life outside of God, and in pleasure outside of God, and in opposition to God's law. Well, and therefore the end was near, and the fall of Rome was inescapable. No question. So, if Augustine were alive today... He would recognize the situation. He would recognize the situation, and he would say, Oh, ho, let's look at your entertainment. Let's look at your films your nightclub life. What goes on here? Well, it looks like the new Rome is about to fall. Well, I recall, and I've always regret that I don't recall who wrote it, 
the man who wrote, he said, those who still find pleasure in vice and pain in virtue have not had enough experience with either. <laughs> yes. Very good. Very, very good. Now, the to prof if you reach the stage that we have reached here, it's not possible to profane women anymore because there are no bounds, including uh, the most revolting sadism yes. and thousands of bodies across the country. And the feminists have helped do it to themselves. Well, their answer is to teach uh, women how to use karate. Mm -hmm. They have wrestling classes. Uh, yes. But this really, from the point of view of civilization, is a terrible uh, point to reach. Mm -hmm. Because when you no longer protect the women and children, you don't have a civilization worthy of the name. Even savages take care of their own. Yes. Even primitives. It's the greatest, oldest taboo in the world, in history. I noticed on television today that I saw Israeli soldiers beating Palestinian women who are demonstrating. Yes. Now, this is not to... Uh, pinpoint the Israeli army, I don't think any other army would behave any better in this time. Mm -hmm. Well, we are seeing a very, very thorough breakdown, and the war against the unborn is a part of it. Big part. That is a tremendous uh, bit of profanity because the most uh, innocent kind of life, the unborn child, is the object of total war. Well, and look it at is mothers themselves who are responsible for initiating it. And to me that tells us how sick, how evil our civilization has become. Well, of course the excuse for abortion is always that either the woman has been raped or it would create great distress if she had a child, but it's hard to believe that this would be true of 25 million women. Mm -hmm. They couldn't all be economically distressed. Yes. They couldn't all have been raped. Well, you have the rise of abortion in the last days of a civilization, as in Greece and Rome. When that happens, it means that the will to live is gone. The future is, looks dark. Nobody wants to bring anybody into the future world, and also the selfishness that I don't want to be burdened. Yes, that's it. I don't want to be burdened with these new lives that I'll have to take care of and be responsible for. When a civilization has a will to death, it will dig up any excuse for what it's doing including killing unborn babies. It would make more sense if those people themselves committed suicide rather than going after the unborn. Well, as a business, as a profane act, of course, we come right down to it. 
But to be profane in the sense that you've described it is to operate as though God doesn't exist. Yeah. And this, of course, is the essence of criminality. The thing that marks a criminal from other men is uh, a criminal of either sex is their lack of respect for the rights of others. A criminal treats other people as though they have no rights whatever. They have no rights to property. They have no rights to their own life. They have no rights to be safe. A criminal will beat them, will shoot them, will kill them, will rob them, will swindle them, will lie to them, do anything. Treat mm -hmm. other human beings as though they are nothing. Yeah. Now, when this happens, when the state begins to behave this way, when the state begins to say human life is nothing, then nobody's life is safe because they say, well, it's a fetus. But nothing else ever emerges from the fetus except the human being. Mm -hmm. So it's ridiculous to assume that we're not talking about human beings. Then you're talking about what Augustine mentioned, a criminal state. Yes. Well, a criminal state has no future. This is what uh, is very clear from both scripture from the saints like Salvian and others. It was Salvian who wrote in some respects the best account of the fall of Rome. He said, Rome is dying, but it continues to laugh. Mm. And he said the fall was a demonstration that God was on the throne. And instead of bewailing the fall of Rome, he summoned Christians to recognize it had to be, that it, there was nothing uh, in the way of being pessimistic or sour or uh, having a bad outlook to say that Rome is going to fall and we as Christians must face up to this fact. Rather, he saw it as the hope of the future. It's sad that we don't read Salvian more because his governance of God was such a telling book. Today, as we face the future, we know that uh, this order, the world over, is under judgment and is going to collapse. That's the most marvelous thing we can say about the future. Well, people live. One of the great things about historical uh, reading is one surprise at the fact that there are survivors, mm -hmm. that life goes on, that the world didn't come to an end, yes. that uh, you can go through these matters. Uh, people laugh. Uh, people feel good. And our children and grandchildren are going to have a better world because of God's judgment on this one. Well, certainly, if all this enormous and evil triviality comes to an end, it's going to be better for our descendants. And the world is not going to be better, certainly, by the growth of uh, more power in Washington or any other capital. <laughs> well, Washington is, is a laughing stock of the world. It's incoherent. It's cowardly. It's the Roman Senate in its worst days. It's a, it's a, I just saw on television tonight the uh, contra leader 
who has just been informed that Congress had voted down all assistance, and he said the United States has just betrayed another ally. Mm -hmm. We have made ourselves an absolute disgrace, and at the same newscast, by the way, for the first time, said that Soviet troops, or Soviet arms, rather, are pouring into Nicaragua at the rate of hundreds of millions of dollars, more in the last two months than ever before. Mm-hmm. So the day of reckoning is rather clear on the horizon. Somebody yeah. at that meeting I was at last weekend said, it's not superstition to observe a train is coming. <laughs> well, and we're told by people who have left the Soviet Union that it is on the brink of internal collapse. Well, they too. The wages of sin are always death everywhere in the world. Yes, but we're in no position to pick them up. No. No. Well, all this tells us that God is on the throne. And that there's a penalty for profanation. Yes. Well, our time is drawing to a close. Do you have any final statements on it? I think you've given Augustine uh, his confessions and the city of God, a very good plug tonight. Uh, those books are still in print. Yes. And they would be well worth reading. They will be in print when the big names of today will be forgotten. Can you imagine? They've been in print how many centuries now? Yes. yes. Sixteen centuries. In his confessions, Augustine begins very early, I think, on the first or second page. Last saying, our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. And that was the sentence that Francis Thompson picked up and wrote the greatest poem in the English language, The Hound of Heaven. I agree with that. That's true. But I guess you have to meet that hound before you realize how true it is. Yes. Magnificent poem comes right out of the Psalms, of course, also. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.